0: Welcome to another episode of Young Entrepreneurs with the Green Roof Team. My name is Nelson Fernandez, and we're here today with Riggs Eichelberry. How are you doing today?
1: Nelson, I'm doing great, and it's, it's really so great to be on your show. I love your mission and what you're trying to do there. Thank you. Cool. So, Riggs, today, would you like to kick off our episode
0: with telling the audience why you should listen to this episode and other episodes?
1: Thank you, Nelson. You know water in the world and even in America is in deep trouble. And the reason is that we're not investing enough in water infrastructure. And uh, the federal government is contributing less and less each year. And the infrastructure bill is not really helping. And so we have a failure of the whole big central systems. Now, in your home, you're still gonna keep getting water, flush your toilet, et cetera because otherwise a lot of people would get sick. But industry is being told to do their own treatment. And this is a major sea change in water. And we are here to help those private water treatment sites, commercial, agricultural, industrial, do their own water treatment. And we're bringing in investors to fund these activities. And we believe we can make a major change in how water is treated in America and hopefully the rest of the world. That sounds wonderful. And I'm excited to learn more about water treatment.
0: So before we dive into the technical details and more of a question basis, you want, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience and myself, who you are, where you're from, and what, what you've done in the past and what some of your hobbies are?
1: Well, okay. So I actually was raised as the son of an international businessman. So I call no place home. Um, you know, I was born in Canada. I lived in the Caribbean and in Europe, et etc. And um, followed that up with a an early career in the nonprofit space, where I I sailed on ships all over the world. Um, and when I finally settled down, and it was by then it was the early '80s, I was really fascinated by the prospect of technology. What, what can technology do to, to change conditions? Because you can pass laws saying that you must do this, this, and this, and this. But if the technology doesn't exist, it's not going to happen. So I got involved with the the whole, um, you know, internet, uh, the early um, computing movement of the 80s into the 90s, and I just fell in love with the rapid change that we could make happen. Fast forward to the early 2000s, and I was finally, you know, uh, considered bankable as a CEO like okay you can be a CEO but the people who wanted me to be a CEO wanted me for a totally different space which was this brand new space called algae microalgae for biofuels it was a fascinating space and I got all kinds of uh, excitement from the mainstream media I was you know um, Stuart Varney called me I'll call you algae man you know It it was an amazing time only problem was it relied on a very high cost of crude. Crude has to be at $120 a barrel in order to pay for the algae. And of course, the oil industry promptly tried it, dropped all the prices, went all of down to $35. And overnight I was looking at a business plan, like, where were we going? And so we managed to uh, reinvent ourselves into the water industry. And that's where we are today. And the, the interesting thing about water industry is I landed in, all of a sudden, I didn't have Stuart varney interested in me i was not waterman i was nothing and it turns out that nobody really pays attention everybody thinks water is important but they don't they don't want to know about sewage and water treatment and those big concrete structures down by the river like no and so i realized that it was not well um uh, it was not if you don't have people's attention and care then the funding doesn't happen right And uh, sure enough, I discovered that there's very poor funding of water treatment and water purification. And this is why we have problems in Flint, South Bend, Fort Lauderdale, Compton, California. The list goes on and on. Why? Because the way we treat water all along is broken. And it's just sitting there falling to pieces. What do we do about it? Well, unfortunately, the trillions are not available. I don't know where where they're they're going. going. We're spending trillions, but they're not going to water. So we realized that what's what's happening is more and more of the actual purification of water is happening at the places where it is made dirty, which makes sense, right? I mean, why not (laughs) clean it up? Clean up your mess where you are, right? Don't send it somewhere else. And sure enough, that's what's been happening. More and more businesses, farms, industry are doing their own water treatment. Only problem is the funding isn't there. Today we are a leader in funding these systems, so that Nelson, let's say that you have a, a brewery and you're trying to expand, and you know, nobody will take your, your dirty water. We'll give you a, a wastewater treatment system, and you'll just pay by the gallon. You don't have to pay a bunch of capital. And this is what we, you know, it's, it's normal in other spaces. It's called water as a service, but it's brand new in water, and that's what we're doing. It's super exciting. And,
0: and we, we think, think we're making a big difference now. Awesome, um, definitely. I know. I'm curious on how water would get treated by industry. Um, for the past two, three years now, I've been working for a liquefy natural gas company, so we try and do as much work as we can on site, um, especially when it comes and she playing with the um, surrounding water areas. Like for example, there's a swamp-like area nearby that was destroyed many years ago, but then. Um, The facility we went in and put in the money to be able to revitalize it, and now we make sure it's maintained um, because we want to make sure that we keep the public happy. It's near beaches, but then also it's our more so like responsibility to make sure we keep the area better. So it's amazing work and I'm excited to keep on hearing about it, um, especially how it affects the local areas. Um, my cousin actually lives in Fort Lauderdale and when I visit him, we never drink out the tap. You
1: always have <laughs> your exactly. jugs. <laughs> I know it's pretty sad. Um, but you know, it sounds like you have a good situation where you are, but it's, it's, uh, it's unfortunately not, the not the rule. The rule is that there's, you know, like Fort Lauderdale has these problems with sewer mains breaking and poop ending up on the lawns and all kinds of stories. And, um, and the water quality. So you know that you can invest in an oil well, right? Mm -hmm. And you get royalties. You can't do that with a water system. You can't invest in a water system. And we thought that was really strange because if the water industry needs money, well, why don't we open it up to regular investors to invest in? And so that's what we did. It's something called water on demand. And basically, um, if a business wants a water system, they get it, they just start paying by the gallon just like they did with, their, with uh, the city. And then the investor gets uh, a royalty and people love investing in water much more than in oil. I mean, they think it's great, right? Because it's sustainable. So why not invest in a water well, quote unquote, right? That's a big program of ours, very, very popular. And um, we're raising money very quickly on that to specifically pay for these water as a service type uh, projects.
0: So then once a entry or area, they use a the water treatment system, does it stay within the utility company? So then are you sending the clean water back to the utility company?
1: Correct. Right. The utilities are perfectly happy to get treated water back, you know? So uh, they just don't want the dirty water. And so they'll provide the clean water to the, to the users. And we're also, we have projects to clean that water because as you know, it's not always perfect. And then, maybe recycle it internally, and then reset it. You see, the only chance you have, if you think about, you're talking about sustainability, you know, you know that Israel recycles almost 90% of its water. Mm. The second in the world is Spain at 20%. The US, 1%. Now, the reason for it is a design reason. None of these, we have older water systems that were designed, you know, Israel designed everything post-World War II, right? That's when they were created. Quite recent compared to the Americas and Europe. Right. It's kind of like the same way we're stuck with old phone lines, right? So um, here we have uh, old water systems that only go one way. Like uh, I used to live in LA, and if you flush your toilet in Beverly Hills, the water goes all the way down to the ocean. gets treated, and it goes in the ocean. It's clean, but it doesn't go back to Beverly Hills. It's over. Um, But if you're in Beverly Hills and you treat it yourself you can keep reusing it, right? And so that's where the recycling can occur is at the point of use. So we think that it's a great way for users to uh, clean the water coming in, reuse it one or two times, and then finally send it to the municipality clean, uh, what they call treated, which is a particular level of clean. And that makes everybody happy. Now, the infrastructure doesn't have all that load. It's been unburdened and the users have control and by the way, water rates are inflating at a rate three times the rate of normal inflation. So as it is, it's a really bad situation um, that hopefully we can help um, excuse me mitigate, but also return a good investment that's inflation friendly to the investor. So all in all, Origin Clear is providing an inflation friendly way to invest in um, an asset, water, which is very beneficial and increases sustainability through promoting recycling and uh, control of the process by the user. And we think that's the future, uh, not just in America, but in North America and the world eventually.
0: And thinking about the three pillars of sustainability, you are tackling the finance side, the people side, connecting with users, and then also the environmental of having clean water. It's amazing.
1: We love it. We're... we're. Um, It was hard at first because we couldn't figure out how to change conditions in the water industry. Like, what? It's not movable. It's resistant to change, right? And we found that um, where the the need really was was these um, stranded users who were stuck with a problem and they didn't have the finance, you know, a million dollars floating around for a water system. They're making beer or they're making whatever or they're they're managing um, a group of homes. They just want to get on with it. And so we help uh, people just solve their water problems. And heres we're not just going to build it with our own company. We have a good company in Texas that builds these systems. We're spreading it out. And we will let any water company uh, that has a client work with us to get this thing financed. And thus, we want to spread water on demand as a concept um, and really make change happen. And if that happens and we can really make you know societal change happen then all this time of learning things along the way and uh, spending time in the .com and being a ship captain and all that will have been worth it for me, for sure.
0: Amazing. So touching upon more of the financial side of <clears throat> water and demand. Yes. How does your company be able to generate revenue not having that large initial cost for the user? Does it take longer to okay,
1: get so- the payback? Well, I'll give you a good example. Used to, used to be you bought Microsoft Office for like 130 bucks one time, boom. Now you pay for it like $19 a month. And if you do the math, you're paying more, right? Over time, but you're getting a better product. You've got the one, you know, OneDrive, the cloud, you've got real-time everything. Microsoft Office is a it's a live managed product, right? And so you don't mind spending that money because... You know, you're doing all kinds of cool things in there and it, you know, all of a sudden some feature shows up, boop, you know, and that is what we're trying to bring to water. In other words, moving from here, here's your, here's your water system. Have fun. Goodbye to here's a service. We're going to take care of your water and you won't have to worry. You don't have experts. We'll just make sure it runs and make sure through remote management that the proper treatment is done. And you just pay us, you know, X amount per gallon on a long-term contract. And everybody's happy. Your problem goes away. We own that machine. So the investor's happy because he still owns the machine that's sitting at that location. Um, So it's it's an asset investment and it returns good money. Um, You know, we were, uh, I was interviewing the guy who did a lot of work to implement uh, what's called Toyota Mobility, which is uh, transportation as a service. And he's saying that if you turn uh, cars into a service, your margin is improved by 30 to 40%, right? As opposed to just selling a car and throwing it out the door. So you have a lot of um, lost revenue if you just sell machines or products. The smart people are the ones that make it a continuing recurring revenue, right? So it's more of a subscription process, um, purchase where
0: you have continual maintenance available and services than just a one-time here you go.
1: Fully outsourced. We take care of the problem and it's in your operating budget. You don't see it, it's fine, it's no problem. So it's easy to digest for the end user. They t- a major problem goes away. Um, you know, I, I, I was talking to a brewery owner and, and literally while I was talking to him, this guy shows up and well, who, who are you? Oh, I'm the guy, your, your chiller showed a, a, an, an alert on our, on our network and I've come to fix it. The brewer didn't even know it was broken and the guy shows up to fix it. That's called a service. So all these chillers were being handled by the firm under contract and he didn't have to worry about it. It's like, no, you know what? That's fine, they got it. This really allows you to focus on your core business. And I think at the end of the day, the more you can do that and delegate all the things that are not core focus, the better you'll do and um, the one thing, of course, is those people ne- better not fail. So you have to f- choose your vendors. But if they're good vendors and they, they have um, good systems and processes in place, then just get on with it. Do your job and let the rest of the world take care of theirs. Awesome. So
0: do you have any um, lessons or experiences before that helped get you to this point in your career and in your life and be able to have that perspective of providing service continually?
1: It's really interesting because in the 80s, I was in New York City. And this is when I first got into the free market. Because before that, as I told you, I was in nonprofits or I was in Hollywood, actually, which was the same thing. There's not very logical world in Hollywood. Um, but I landed in New York and I was I was I started a computer company and I became very and I worked very hard. And um, after a few years, I became very discouraged because I was. Launching the, I was changing companies from paper systems to computer computerized accounting. And I was hardly making any money. I was like, this is so hard, so ridiculous. And I ended up giving away the business to my best salesman. And he's become a millionaire ever since because what was all the money? The money was in the long-term relationship with all those customers, right? Because they needed to have, and sure enough, when you have a computer, uh, an outsourced IT firm, you pay them a monthly fee per employee, and whatever they need is taken care of, right? Antivirus, uh, burning a new machine, whatever, and it's a real cash cow for the IT firm, and for you, you don't have the worry. You can say, "Hey, fix this problem," right? So it's a win-win for everybody, and that was the hidden revenue that I didn't realize was there because it was so early on. By the time. I moved on and um, started actually become a marketer. Eventually, I became a marketer in the internet. But as as a service provider, I didn't realize the power of the recurring revenue, and it it was a tough lesson to learn. It was really tough. Um, and uh, you know, you, you have a big failure like that. And you're like, you like you lick your wounds for a while, right? But um, it really taught me that. You, a relationship is so hard to create that you don't want to lose it, right? Let's say Nelson that I sell you something and then I go away. Well, wait a minute! It took all this work to get to know you, and you got to know me, and this and that and the other thing. Well, why not just continue it? And that way, you build this ongoing um, relationship. You know, hopefully, good for you, good for me. But you know, it's kind of like the value of a marriage. You know, do you want to have one night stand or do you want a marriage? Well. Marriages are much more productive because you can get things done together, right? Same thing, really.
0: Awesome, that's a great comparison too. So during your time and you mentioning learning from your lessons, um, one concept that I was reading about you is called mistake-based marketing. And can you just like talk a bit about what that means? What is the fundamentals of that concept and how you can use that to grow?
1: The really interesting thing. Uh, thanks for noticing that. Okay, so in the '90s, we had um, a lot of money because it was the dot com, dot com boom, and so I would do these surveys. I would have you know phone surveys done to determine you know the need for a product and and its positioning and some of its branding and so forth. Year two thousand came along, and all of, a sudden, all of a sudden, I had no budget to survey. Nothing. Like, I mean, I can't find out how to launch a product, how to position it, how to brand it, how to this, no, you can't, There's no money. So I did, I said, you know what? I'm just gonna do these like trial rollouts and send it out there and see what happens, right? So you do a little sample launch. That's what I call mistake-based marketing. You, you try it out like, oh, okay, tweak it, send it out, tweak it, send it out, tweak it. And you're basically using the marketplace as a rapid fire um, testing environment. Don't spend too much money, obviously, because you're learning. But it allows you to sort of get uh, the same result as a survey, but you're doing it in real time, and it's uh, it's a lot like uh, Facebook marketing. It's right? very a lot like that. You know, you, you throw out a uh, ad, and then you well, that didn't work too well. You sort of fiddle with it. it it's not what you, it's not worth surveying the Facebook prospects. You just do an ad, and then and then try and fix it right. And I think that's really the more and more the way to do it because. We have such real-time tools these days. In the old days, you know, when you rolled out a product, it took months and years. I remember the, uh, that, the Gillette uh, multi-blade product. Mm-hmm. It took them four years to develop it. A razor blade, right? Well, they tested it and this and that and that. Today, we don't have that luxury of that time. We're like, get it done, so in real-time. So I think mistake-based marketing, you go, look, don't be afraid to fail, but make it a controlled experiment and learn quickly and learn again, learn again, learn again, learn again, learn again, and you'll you'll get there. And this is how we got to water on demand in early 2020 when COVID hit. We we're like, oh, my gosh, all the investors are freaked out. This is the um, week of my birthday, early February 2020. And all of a sudden, like, all the investors, because that was when the price of oil crashed, and we realized we had a problem and um, that we couldn't sort of do what we were doing, which is mainly selling technology. And we went into this intense process that took basically two years and it took us all the way to today where we were constantly figuring things out, trying them out, trying them out, trying them out. And finally we started in September of last year, we started raising the money, the capital for this fund. We'd done a lot of work, but every single step of it was tested in real time. So we didn't have to go back and go, you know what, that was terrible, right? Imagine, for example, I mean, I've, you know, if you're, uh, I've been at C and you, you take a wrong course and the longer you go off course, of course, the longer it's going to take to come back. What if you correct on the way, click, 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 click. If you have a good feedback loop, you can go, oh, I'm off course, fix it, off course, fix it, off course, fix it. As opposed to this big, long. And that a lot of people make that mistake of persisting in a negative or or um, non-productive path for too long and they're afraid of being wrong and they don't, you know, what would people think? And what if I fail? Well, you know what, get over it because you'll fail anyway that way. So just accept that the micro failures are actually productive versus big ones.
0: Definitely, I agree. Um, I know in any project that we go about or I go on my own, I'm always looking for feedback, asking everyone, oh, Is this working? Is this not working? If it's not, how can we go about improving it? And I learned that mainly through um, a leadership program I was in in my university, but then also the design thinking model through um, Stanford University, which I've immersed myself into being able to go in rapidly prototype and then go through the entire feedback loop, seeing what works, what doesn't work. And that sounds quite similar to your mistake based
1: marketing. You're right, because manufacturing is accustomed to this um, and the product development process, but it was not so much in marketing. Marketing was not quite there at the time that that, that I really had to figure this out. And I think today we take it for granted. Absolutely. Cool.
0: So thinking about a company as a whole, and I'm sure you have your areas that you're specialized in, how do you go about ensuring that the areas of the company that you're not well versed in is accessible?
1: Bill Gates once said, try to hire people who are smarter than you. And that is the case, obviously smarter in their, in their specialty, right? So, so I have a, a COO who is much smarter than me in operations and I have a finance, CFO who's much smarter than me in finance and so forth and so on. So we started doing well when I started getting good people around me who I didn't have to tell them what to do. They're like, okay, hey, Riggs, I just figured this whole thing out, we're this. I'm like, great, <laughs> carry on, right? So um, where I find I have to push people, push, push, push. Did you do this? Did you do this? When are you going to do this? How soon? you going to do this? These are not the people you want at the high level. Now I'm not saying that uh, everybody's perfect, that you, you know, you don't have this people who are not self-starters. It is what it is, but they can be programmed, but at the highest level, you better have a bunch of self-starters in their category. So to me, uh, a team is the number one thing There's nothing more important. And, um, If I'd had a better team earlier on, then, you know, I've would have gotten there earlier. Um, You can't, you can't regret it because you get the people when you, when you get them, right? You, it comes a moment when you are the right company for a particular person to come. It's almost a synchronicity concept, right? 2018, we were like running out of conventional financing options and then this amazing guy, Ken Berenger showed up who's now executive vice president and my co-strategist on Water Demand. And somehow magically he became available and it's been amazing ever since. This is true of our uh, chief strategic officer and president Andrea D'Agostini, same thing. We hired him just a couple of months ago and he magically became available. So I think that, that you sort of progress your own organization to a point where it's, it's the right fit for or the right person to come in. So maybe you can't force it. Maybe you just you know keep building until sort of the things come together. And I think if you're very lucky, you end up with a very good team and then you have a life. If you don't, then you end up being harried and uh, exhausted and out of money. <laughs> so get a, get a good team. That's super important.
0: Definitely, I agree. I know um, the team I'm with right now In the beginning, it was a bit tough because we didn't understand the scope. We were kind of all over the place, scattered, especially Mm -hmm. myself. Didn't have much of a life. But then after seeing where everyone was, what they're aligned are, what their values are, what their goals were, most importantly, then I began making a more of a matrix and seeing the connections of, oh, this individual has strong traits in this area. They might be a good fit to take more of a lead and It worked out, and and several months later, we actually had the wind turbine up here installed. And going back to- uh, Nice work. Thank you. It was an amazing time being able to install it, um, being able to make all the compromises with uh, facilities engineers to get it installed. Um, Mm -hmm. But leading back to building a team, one mentor I had in the past, he always um, preached about you always build the team before tackling a project. And I, that holds true for everything you just said. Um, having the right people, having the right team just makes life a whole lot easier. You can help distribute out the work, have it all be uniform.
1: Even it's out. the difference between how, and success and failure, I, I do think. Truly great companies are a conspiracy of really top people at the top, I believe. So
0: with the right people, and pivoting your own company, how did you see changes in, say, the mission and mission of the company and direction you were going once you did pivot?
1: Well, this company also was built in the public markets. It's kind of how we got ourselves funded. But during the time, during the fourteen years we've been in business, the over-the-counter market, the penny stock market, has really gone down down the drain because there's been a lot of abuses. A lot of people have have taken people for a ride, and so. Um, it it really um, the company these days needs to be on the Nasdaq to raise money at de- decent terms and so forth. So we've made that our big our big goal now is um, get on the Nasdaq. There's certain requirements, and we we have a roadmap to get to them. And uh, I think that is the most critical thing we could do is to is to be a Nasdaq company and um, really define. This new water as a managed service concept for the marketplace, and be a market leader—you know, sort of be the Amazon of water—and that, to me, is, is um, we, we got to do it. We, we got to move up to that level. Uh, we have a superb investor base, great team. We got the right um, business model, good technologies. Uh, at this point, it's just you know work night and day, and we'll get there, right? So I heard a lot of different
0: factors from the finance side and the technology and the people. Um, What are some ways that um, your company moves forward to be able to invite new investors, new um, clients in?
1: The number one thing that this company um, needs now is to really popularize the concept of, uh, we had such a hard time getting people interested in you know, sewage, et cetera. But um, I think now it's moving more like, you know, it's, it's an attractive concept of water like an oil well and, and the investability and so forth and making it a new, cool new thing for investors to do that now we just need to get a lot of visibility for it. Just get a lot, a lot of, and we don't care if they're going to invest. We just want people to like the concept and be interested. And that will build its own, uh, you know, virality in a way, right? Because people use word of mouth, et cetera. That's really our next step is, is to um, not be the best kept secret. We're pretty good. I mean, we have good visibility and so forth, but I'm, I'm talking about, you know, water demand becoming a household word or rather a business word a, word, a word of the business world, shall we say, right? That needs to happen because then we can really start to um, take our ideas and share them. And we don't want to hold on to it all, right? We do like, hey, you know, Let's have any, a bunch of water companies doing this. Let's make it a big thing that, that is done a lot. One company doesn't change an industry. Neither, 20 companies don't. But 100 or 1,000 companies, that starts to make change. And so that's really where, you know, by having a tremendous amount of visibility and documented wins, uh, you know, investors winning at the, making good, you know, generational money uh, from royalties, et cetera, then it starts to all kind of become like something people are excited about, uh, and the word gets around, and, and then you become hopefully a household word in, in the business investing world. So that's that's our goal. Um, in a way, we like to talk about ourselves as we're Tesla in two thousand four, which is when Elon Musk came in and uh, dropped thirty million dollars into a company that already existed, and then they built this like really crappy Lotus car with a bunch of computer batteries. And, uh, but they made one, they made one. And that's the key is another big, big lesson for me in business is make the first thing. Just don't, don't, you know, don't let the, the, uh, the great be the enemy of the good. Just get the darn thing out. That way you have a milestone. Boom, here it is, project done, right? And so already we started raising money in September, already we have revenues kicking in for the investors from Water on Demand. Now, it's it's not big revenue, but it's like, okay, we're rolling, we're doing something. And that I think is key.
0: And that sounds like um, a small win or hitting a milestone. And I know in anything that we do here, we always focus on building those small wins. So then at the end of the day, at the end of the year, we can see and look back and be like, oh, we did so much. And it's just not all depending on end product. Um, do you feel somewhere about keeping track of milestones and just focusing on those small wins?
1: Well, first of all, it's a morale thing, right? So the team has to know that they got somewhere. Um, and and of course, the investors need to know that too. But there's no better milestone than a check in the bank, right? So the investor starts seeing, even if it's a few dollars, like, oh, wow, that was quick. Like, okay, you know, and more and more and more. And that way they relax, like, okay, you know what? The trickle will become a stream. The stream will become a flood. It's all good, right? But if they have to wait with total drought, 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 because it's going to be a big avalanche, they get more and more freaked out. So better to start a little bit early than do a lot later, in my opinion.
0: Um, So, and just hear your feedback about what you think about the episode, the conversations, and any topics you'd like to cover, as well.
1: Well, it was really interesting, you know, circling back to general sustainability. I mean, you know, putting water in the general context of sustainability and the problem with sustainability as a field, it's often not sustainable. In other words, uh, during the height of the green thing, when I was in algae, I used to ask investors, so have you ever made money from a green investment? And they go, nope, (laughs) I haven't. I'm like, well, what's the use of that? What's the use of sustainability if your investment doesn't have ROI right so um, so sustainability isn't just hey we do good recycling or we have green energy or whatever it's got to make financial sense or else how is this sustainable right people people miss that and I think that that's been very bad for the whole green space it's gotten a, a bad rep and this is kind of why people have been reluctant to leave dirty industries because at least that's reliable right It's like hey I got an all well on it throws money at me. And I know that people are still driving cars, et cetera. Now I think it's a terrible space for economic reasons because it's up and down constantly. You can't control it. When are they going to like shut down a bunch of wells? You don't know. And you know, when is an administration going to change its mind about a pipeline this and that is so political. So um, it's not a great space, but I can see why people are in it because it's big and it's been around forever. Water is big, it's been around forever, but it has not been available to the general investor. So, so we plug them in and now we have a whole new source of energy, financial energy for the water industry. So our job again, is to make it a sustainable investment so that people make money from their water investments. And if they do that, water is such a virtuous space, then we've got a combination of making good money and helping the world, I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Now I have to say also, I'm a water guy in my, you, you were asking earlier about hobbies, I'm a big sailor, but I'm also a big skier and both of them are in forms of water. Right. <laughs> so in a way uh, I really, really rely on, on water supply. And when there's droughts, it affects the skiing too. Right. So um, I, I, I definitely am aware of um uh, the pace of climate change and what's going on. And, and you know what, it's, it's a generational challenge. This, this climate change thing is, is something that um, if I can get origin clear to a certain level where I get kicked upstairs because I'm not good enough to be a CEO, then I would like to work on some of these uh, climate change challenges, because I think we have embedded problems that are very, very hard to change. A lot of vested interests. And I have, you know, uh, ideas of where to go with that. But, you know, good things come from relatively small steps, right? Um, you know, like uh, having a city with rooftops that are all gardens, for example, that is a cool idea, right? You get, you know, uh, food and stuff like that, but you also get, you know, tremendous amount of cooling effect and so forth. So, you know, if, uh, or, you know, like that example of when they reintroduced wolves into, the, into Yellowstone, right? And it complete, there's that whole case study with it. It fixed everything, all of the erosion and the drought and the this and that, and, 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 and just reintroducing some wolves. And so we need to think about these pressure points and how we can do something surgically, boom, and then it makes all this ecological change. That to me is really interesting, right? There was, um, there was a saying by so- uh, Socrates that I just posted on Facebook today. The secret of change is to focus all of your energy not on fighting the old but on building the new socrates and i think that's a big deal when you think about it right so don't try and um fight the old because you'll be old yourself right and uh building the new is more fun too right
0: most definitely i know you even have a finite amount of energy a finite amount of time focus on the past you can't change it you can only move forward to change the future So coming towards the end of our episode today, do you have any advice for young individuals going into businesses, starting new businesses, and being entrepreneurs?
1: I would say apprenticeship is a big deal. Go somewhere where you can get, learn the ropes. I jumped into computing in New York in the 80s. and The first computer I sold, I literally did not know where the switch was. Turn it on. Of course, by the time I sold it, I did, but the point I'm making is I had no apprenticeship. It's like, well, computer sells great. Uh, And it created a whole lot of extra hard work and stress. So I think that you really want to go somewhere and like, if you're gonna go in finance, apprentice with somebody in finance. If you're gonna go building rooftops, go with somebody who's building roofs. You know, I mean, do that. And I think that you'll then um, get that tremendous fluency that you need to then build on top of it and be creative because every profession has a whole bunch of layers of stuff that people already know. You don't wanna re- relearn that stuff, right? And so by just getting that apprenticeship in place, um, now you can be really interesting to, um, to people who want to fund change.
0: Amazing,
1: sounds great. Well, thank you again, Mr.
0: Igleberry for joining me today and discussing clear origin sustainability and
1: technology nelson it's been such a pleasure i wish you luck with your project sounds like you got a good thing going and uh, let's let's check in on each other in a few months and see how we're doing sounds great sounds wonderful and with
0: that we conclude another episode of young entrepreneurs with the green roof team today featuring riggs igleberry of origin clear Um, Special thanks to our sponsors for supporting us through our, our endeavors in the past and in the future. And
1: remember, folks, stay sustainable. Peace out. Thank you.